And while you're doing that, uh, just a reminder, a very quick reminder, that the uh, commitment card, as we get to uh, get set for the, the fiscal year that's going to begin next month, and we're putting, the finance committee is putting together the budget for the fiscal year of March 2012 through February 2013, they need your card if you've not turned it in yet. And this is a very important card. Uh, there are cards out in, in the, the family room that you can pick up and put it in that, uh, that lockbox if you've not done it yet. But these cards are very important as it allows uh, a, a total number of, of uh, dollars each week to, to, uh, to be communicated to the finance committee so that they know as we're setting together our budget how our ministries can expand out into the community. And if you've not had an opportunity to do that yet or have, uh, have just forgotten about it, uh, you know, no harm, no foul, but we really do need that card, and please get it in today. Now, with that said, let's jump into God's Word and let's ask Him to bless us as we pray together. Father, our heads are bowed in submission to Your authority in our life. We recognize You as our King, our Master, not just our Savior, which we give all glory to You for being, but You're our Master, the Creator of our very lives, of everything that we touch and see. To You, Father, we submit our lives. And as we study this great passage, and, and, and many of them in Your Word, Father, it's our, our deepest prayer that You will help us to, to understand and so give us eyes that see, ears that hear, Father. This we ask in all humility and modesty in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the most famous cemeteries in all of America in Hollywood Hills, California, is Forest Lawn. And Forest Lawn is a famous, you've, prob you've probably heard of it, uh, not just because there are a lot of famous people that are buried in Forest Lawn, but it's very famous because of some of the outlandish and sometimes sort of strange funerals that take place. One in particular involved a very, very affluent man, a very rich fella, who when he died, it had his, he had it stipulated in his will that he wanted to be buried in his Cadillac. And he wanted to be sitting behind the, uh, the, the, the steering wheel. He wanted to be wearing his finest tux, and he wanted the most expensive cigar hanging out of his mouth. Well, you know, as these things happened, the, the fella passed away, and all of the stipulations in his will were taken care of, and he was, he was buried as the will said. And as the crane is, is lowering the Cadillac with the man in the tuxedo with the cigar hanging out of his mouth is lowered into the grave, it is said that you could hear the crane operator as he was watching all of that say, Man, now that's living. You know, you don't have to be a Christian very long in your life before there comes a point where you feel sometimes out of touch with your culture that sometimes you're out of sync with your culture. You feel a little uncomfortable in your culture. Now, the church for the last 2,000 years has had a couple of classic ways, and by classic I mean historical, a couple of classic ways that they have tried to deal with that sense of being uncomfortable, the discomfort with the culture. The first has been complete assimilation. That is, you dive right into that culture and you begin to look like it and you smell like it and you taste like it and there's no standard for moral behavior that's different from the rest of the world. There is, there is no difference in the system of values and principles. You can observe a believer who is assimilated and you're not going to notice any discernible differences between him and somebody who is an unbeliever. And there are examples of this even to this day. The second is to, to denounce. It's denunciation. 
It's to, to separate yourself from the culture and to say, in no way do I want to participate in that. In no way do I want to touch it. And in no way do I want it to touch me. And again, you can disdain the culture. You can denounce the culture. You can separate yourself. You know, it's one of those ways, even to this day, that many churches uh, seek or communities of faith seek to, to, uh, to, to deal with this idea of, of culture and how comfortable they are with it. This morning, I'm going to suggest a third way, a, a biblical way, I think the Jesus way. And Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He's writing to a church that is in the middle of a Roman culture, which is complete opposite of a Christian culture. And he says, dear friends, I urge you, and then two things, as number one, aliens, and number two, as what? Strangers, aliens and strangers. I want you to circle those words in your Bible or write them down on that outline. Very important words. The, the word, the Greek word, the original word for, for alien is the word paroikos, which means basically resident alien. Now, a, a resident alien is more than a tourist, as you know. You're there for more than just a visit. But at the same time, you're not assimilated completely into the culture. As a resident alien you have this understanding, this continuing understanding and remembrance of your culture even though you are happy in a host culture, a different culture. Now, I have an example of this from, from when we were living overseas, from my own life. As you know, uh, Ellen and I were missionaries for a couple of years, and originally we were supposed to go to Zimbabwe, uh, Africa, to do mission work. But the Lord had different plans for us, so we changed kind of in the middle of the stream right there to go to Brazil. And all of our time, Ellen had grown up in Africa, and all of my study, academic time, had been in trying to figure the culture of, of Zimbabwe out and the language and these sorts of things. All of a sudden, we're changing. I don't know anything about Brazil. And so we're flying down to Brazil on a survey trip, and we're going to, 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 to see how the culture is and all of these kinds of things. And we're flying down. And one of the things that, uh, that I understood kind of from the get-go, not fully, but understood it happened, is that when you meet a woman in Brazil... If she's married, you give her three little pecks on the cheek, one on the right side, one on the left, and one on the right. And if she's single, or, or excuse me, that's, that's if she's single, it's three. But if she's married, it's just two, one on the right, one on the left, and that's it. So we arrived down in Brazil, down in Porto Alegre, where we're going to see if we're going to plant a church in, in the state of Rio Grande do Sul. And uh, we're, we're met at the gate by these Brazilian couples that are going to be our hosts. And I walk forward, and here comes one of, one of the, the gals, Cynthia, uh, comes and I know she's married, so I give her a quick little peck on the right cheek and a quick little peck on the left cheek and how, how you doing and these sorts of things. Now I had seen in the movies, and I had heard that in other countries the men greet each other by kissing each other. And so her husband walks over and I put my arms around him and hug him and I give him a kiss on the right cheek, a kiss on the left cheek, and immediately I sense some resistance. And Cynthia bends over and she says, you know, I don't know how men greet each other in the United States, but they don't do it that way in Brazil. <laughs> Culture shock. Thank you very much. You know, Ellen and I moved to Brazil, and we, we had a great life there. And, and one of the things that we were doing is we were making a, our, our home in a place that was not our home. And one of the great examples of this in the Bible is, in the Old Testament is Abraham. Abraham, it said, was called out of Ur the Chaldees to go to a land that was his and at the same time not his, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. And, and one of the greatest examples of this, in fact, the greatest example of it is Jesus. 
Think about Jesus in, in, in light of John chapter 1, verse 10. It says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not what? Recognize Him. Circle that word. Now, here's the important thing. Jesus was not alienated from the world, even though it didn't recognize Him. Jesus made the world for one thing, and He left heaven and all of its holiness and all of its perfect righteousness and all of its perfection in order to come to the world because He loved people. But at the same time, the world did not recognize Him because He lived differently. Jesus was an alien in the world. And because Jesus never fully assimilated into the world, He was constantly misunderstood and He was not accepted. But He was not alienated from the world because He loved it. And, and, and at the same time, Jesus was not, was not assimilating 100% into the culture. Now, this is what the Bible challenges us to do. To not assimilate and not to completely separate, but to live as aliens. This is what the Bible challenges us to do in, in, in John chapter 15 and John chapter 17. To be of the world or to be in the world, but to not be of it. In Philippians chapter 3, you know, Paul again is writing to a church that is in the middle of a Roman Empire that is, that is completely you know, the opposite side of the spectrum from a Christian culture in many respects. But what is it that he reminds them to do? You, know, you do live in this world, but, re, but he reminds them, your citizenship is where? That's right, in heaven. We do not assimilate to the world, but at the same time we're not detaching ourselves from it. The call is for disciples to live significantly different, just like Jesus, from everyone around them. Disciples do not assimilate to the world, nor do they, do they detach themselves from the world, but their life flows out of the gospel, and the gospel flows out of their life. And one of the areas in which this is best seen is in the area of what you do by vocation. It's seen in your work. Do you see what you do as work in light of God? And in light of God's mission. Listen, work is a God-ordained part of being a human, whether you're paid for it or not. I mean, going back all the way to the Garden of Eden, man was given work to do. Think about Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It's up on the screen. The Lord God takes man and He puts him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and to take care of it. There was work to do. I don't know, when I was growing up, I had this mental picture when I was third or fourth grade that in the Garden of Eden, all Adam did was lay in a hammock. That's not biblical nor scriptural in any sense. He was there to do some work. Obviously, there was a, day, there was a time of rest. But He was there to work it. The garden had to be worked. The garden had to be taken care of. Think of Jesus. Jesus came as a carpenter. Think of it from this angle. I mean, over in Psalm 147, you have this great psalm that talks about how God takes care of the world and God takes care of everything in the world. But look now at verse 13. He says, He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. That is, that God somehow is interacting with the city in which you live, the community or the village or the small town that you live in in order to bless it and, and to make it a prosperous place. Then he says, He grants peace to your borders. The idea is that, you know, the shalom, the, not just the absence of strife, but the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the, the presence of, of, of wholeness. And then he says, and he satisfies you with what? The finest of wheat. Now, here's the thing that I believe with all of my heart. 
the God that said, let there be light and there was light, and said, let there be the heavens and the earth and there were the heavens and the earth and the sun and the skies and the stars and the moon and all of these things, if, if God can say that, then God can speak wheat right onto my plate at the dinner table. So why do we need to plow? Why would God do this? Well, part of the reason is that God chooses to include us in the distribution of His blessings. That when I work, and, and whether it's plowing or building a house or, or, or doing something that is constructive, taking care of, of children and changing, I, what I'm doing is dis- distributing the flow of God's blessings in the world. And I ask again, now why would God do that? Why would God choose to use all of us in this room to distribute His blessings throughout the community of San Antonio and Bear County? Well, think, think about going camping with your 10-year-old son and it's, you know, it's up north someplace where it actually gets cold in the winter. It's freezing and it's cold outside. And you tell your little 10-year-old son that if you don't keep the fire going in the fireplace of the cabin, we're all going to freeze to death. And then you tell him, you know what, it's your responsibility to keep the fire going. And you show him how to chop the wood. You show him how to put the wood on the fire. And it's his responsibility. But he's 10 years old. And at some point, the ADD might kick in. And he's not going to stay on task. So what are you going to do? Are you going to let everyone freeze to death because a 10-year-old can't keep the wood chopped and the fire going? No. But the reason that you include them is because good fathers always involve their children in their life and work is to teach them the, the value of work, to teach them responsibility, and at the same time, you teach them to be active and to be productive and, and to contribute to everyone that is connected to the larger community around them, beginning with the family. Why do we give children chores? To teach them to contribute to what is happening, to bless the family around them, to, to contribute to what's happening in the home. Now, connect this theologically to your life. Work has dignity not because of how much money you make, but because God is using you to, dis- to distribute His blessings, whether they be some kind of a product or a byproduct, or whether they might be some kind of a service, or it might be some kind of influence or wisdom or counsel, whatever it might be, but you're distributing His blessings throughout the community. The problem is, is that sin has gotten a hold of our work. And we don't do our work a lot of the time as disciples. Sin has taken our work and warped it to the point that it's not about being part of blessing other people and contributing. Remember what Paul said, everybody should learn how to, how to work to take care of his own needs and then have something to what? To share, to contribute to others. But sin has taken it, and it's not about what we're, we're doing in serving other people as well as taking care of our own life, but it's about, you know, I have worth because I've got X number of dollars in the bank. And what has happened is that it's about getting our identity from our paycheck rather than the identity that is only rightfully found as a son or a daughter of God. Now, whether you build or you bake or you sweep or you operate or you lend or you enforce, you have to see your work as something that God does through you. And the issue that the disciple has to learn is how to integrate faith and work. Now, in the time we have left, very quickly, two things. Number one. Every vocation presents obstacles to spirituality. In other words, 
How do you as a disciple face the obstacles to your faith that are generated in your specific workplace? Or to drill down a little bit deeper, here's another way of asking that question. How do you keep from living a double life? There is the life you live as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, and there is that life that you live as an employee. Now, it's just crazy, really. It's just crazy for our church family not to address this because that's where we spend a lot of our time at work, whether it's paid or not. And again, work is one of those areas of life where our culture encourages us to assimilate rather than to be different. All of us that have been in some kind of secular work have seen from time to time people do things in order to advance themselves that if it was ever exposed would curl your toes. And the unfortunate thing is that many of us have seen disciples of Jesus do the very same thing. Your faith is for your private life and your work is a part of your public life and the two shall never meet. That is one of the mantras of our culture. And the result is that you seal off your faith from your workplace. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that's not biblical. Christianity has everything to do with your work because God invented work in the first place. He, he invented the workplace. And here again is a part of the text from this morning. Verse 17 of Colossians 3. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all. Do it all. In the name of whom? The name of the Lord Jesus. The point is God matters to your work. And the reason God has to matter to your work is because you represent Him and His, and His kingdom in the distribution of His gifts and blessings throughout the community. So as a disciple, does your speech reflect the presence of Jesus in your life? And does your work ethic reflect honesty and truthfulness? And does your integrity reveal itself at all times that you can be trusted? Does your patience shine forth? Are you at work overcoming evil with good? As you go about your job, do people see the greatness of Jesus in your life? And the second thing to think of is this. Every vocation provides a particular mission field. Because there is a separation of faith and work in our world, most believers believe that the only place that they can legitimately and effectively do ministry is by jumping into a program at church. Now listen, that's great, and we're always calling for volunteers here, but that's not the only way that you can be used by God in ministry in the world around you. In the last point, I said God, God should matter to your work. How you do it, that integrity, that spirituality, living as a disciple, picking up your cross every day and following Him, even into the job place. But on the flip side, your work matters to God. You just don't go to work to make a living. The, the gospel is the reality that affects everything you do, including your work. And everywhere you work, there are idols and other signs of fallenness. And there is suffering among co-workers. And a, and a lack or an inability to, to understand with, with clarity, God's clarity, what's happening in the world and the events around us. And everywhere you go, brothers and sisters, you take the kingdom of God with you. And I'm telling you right now that there are places in this city that Mark Absher is never going to get an invitation to come in and on the lunch break preach a, a, a gospel sermon. But he took you there. 
in your neighborhood, in your workplace, wherever you are. Sometimes we need to see God as placing us as missionaries on the mission field that is our office cubicle and the cubicles around it. I've told you this story before. I'll end with this. Landon Sonder tells a story about a, a, a sister in Christ who was, uh, who was up for a promotion and she applied for it. And at the same time, another woman in the office decided that she wanted to apply for the job. She was not a disciple of Jesus. And so she resorted, knowing that she was not as qualified as your sister and my sister in Christ was for the job, she resorted to the ways of the world in trying to get up that ladder and, and to be successful. So she started a campaign where she began to undermine the credibility, the integrity, the character of your and my sister in Christ in that place. And lo and behold, what she did was very effective, and she ended up getting the job even though she wasn't qualified for it. Now what are you going to do? What would you do? Well, our sister has kingdom values in her heart. And she orders some flowers and she places it on the lady's desk with a card that says, Congratulations on getting the promotion. If there's anything that I can do, let me know and I'll help you. Now, this woman who had, had lied and slandered and libeled her way up the ladder knew that this other woman knew what she had done. And she takes the flowers up and she walks over to the cubicle with the desk where this lady is sitting, the, the sister in Christ is sitting, and she puts it down on the desk and she just looks at her. And then she begins to cry. And as the story goes, sister gets up, walks over, pats her on the back, and then sits down. And when she's done crying, they begin a conversation which began to a relationship which led to her inviting this, now her boss, to her dinner table to meet her family. And now there are two sisters in Christ in that workplace. That is somebody that sees their work as the distributing of God's blessings in the community rather than getting her self-identity and her self-worth and her self-image and her, her self-esteem from a job or a position or a paycheck. Was it wrong? Absolutely. Was it unjust? Well, the injustice was, was unspeakable. But that's what it means for your, your, your workplace to be your mission field. Well, Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And, and, and maybe the struggle that you're having right now is, is to really to, to, to raise the standard to... to to magnify the presence of Jesus in your life in such a way that, that it can be seen in your workplace by your co-workers. They see that kindness and that patience and that, and that faithfulness and that love and that joy and that peace and all of that in your life. Even when there's adversity in the office, even when there's a crisis in the company, even when things are not going right, they see the beauty of Jesus because Jesus is what you want and Jesus is what you have. And everything else is secondary. And so maybe what you need are the prayers of the, of the congregation to help you in some way you know, raise the, the visibility of Jesus in your life in some way or to adjust your attitude or, or, or to find the bravery or the courage to live out those kinds of values, picking up your cross on a daily basis and following Jesus, that kind of courage every day. Or it might be that you're wanting to give your life to Jesus this morning and to confess and to repent 
and to have your sins washed away through baptism so that you live as a disciple of Jesus every day. Whatever the case, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them as we stand and sing together. I know the Lord will find a way. 